Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind and sometimes fast forward on the scenes we've loved. I'm Sarah Jane Kemp and this, my co-host, is Rick Martin. Hey Rick, how are you this week? It's been a while since we've spoken. It is, yeah. I've got a little bit of a cold, if I'm honest. Um, you know, get the small violin out, sympathy vote. But um, otherwise, kind of soldiering through. And you're right, it's been a little while since we recorded an episode. And the eagle-eyed amongst the listeners will notice the title of this episode is Lost Artists, or the first in our series of Lost Artists. And we'll explain a little bit like about what that is a little bit later on in the episode. But uh, yeah, we're making up for a bit of lost time i guess we've been away for a few weeks you know a few things have got in the way of us recording but we're kind of back now and uh yeah some changes in the music industry you know the music industry never stands still does it and um you know largely we've been a lockdown free zone as a podcast but it's worth mentioning that a few festivals have now come back and been confirmed for the summer so reading and leeds neighborhood weekender um so it'd be interesting to see kind of what happens next to those won't it it will. And just to pick up on your point about you having a cold, uh, we were just having a little chat offline, weren't we, and saying that you sound a bit like how Chris Martin sings, which I thought was quite a good uh, representation of how you sound today, Rick. Yeah, let's see if you can uh, do, do Coldplay. He's a great singer. and I'm, I'm not saying you're not, but um, yeah, let's see. Well, maybe we'll do that another time. Um, but yeah, whether those uh, festivals can actually run, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, do we? It's, it's kind of the last year and a half has all been very uh, up in the air. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll kind of keep moving and, you know, see whether things keep heading in the right direction and with the vaccination rollout. But, you know, hopefully there's there's a return to some level of normality within the music industry and definitely seen lots of kind of tickets going up for sale over the last few weeks, which has been, you know, really positive. And, you know, lots of people I know have already bought tickets to festivals and gigs and things like that. I think you're right. I think it's, it's quite complex, isn't it? Because I don't know if you saw, but Ian Brown was supposed to be headlining Neighbourhood Weekender in Warrington, a festival I've been to actually, which I basically called Ladstock, like, you know, Woodstock, but for lads, um, lad rock bands wall to wall. And apparently there's going to be a need, the last time I read, for proof of vaccination to get in. So he pulled out of headlining because he, he kind of doesn't agree with that. And if you've seen any news about Ian Brown over the last year, he's quite anti-vaccine, quite anti-lockdown, which we're not going to get into here. We're not a political podcast but it opens some interesting debates i guess about the ethics of so-called vaccine passports but not even all festivals are going to need vaccine passports are they because there's another kind of model i've seen getting uh kind of getting rolled out some of you notice have been announced today yeah this very morning i was uh, had bbc breakfast on while i was getting ready for work and they were talking about the fact that glastonbury has just released information uh they did a bit of a teaser over the last week or so and i think people thought there might be some some kind of physical event happening uh but but no it's actually going to be a virtual festival so they're going to be live streaming sets from the likes of Coldplay and Heim it's going to take place in May which is a bit different to when the actual uh kind of physical event was going to take place but I wonder if many more festivals will be you know trying to stay afloat with that model this summer and what do you think Rick I mean obviously you can never replace the the kind of atmosphere and feeling and vibe that you get from an actual festival do you think virtual festivals are a good substitute actually I, th I think you know what changed my mind on this was when Ori the Orioles who are a band we've talked about quite a lot on this show and may crop up a little bit later on as well they did that virtual gig from the trades club in Hebden Bridge last year and it, it actually sounded really good I think I think when festivals and when gigs are kind of set up to be live streamed I feel like the sound is a bit more authentic than when I guess when you think about it, a lot of live music we've seen virtually has been stuff that people record on their phones 
for YouTube. So I think actually, I mean, you know, it's never going to fully replace being in a field, but I think people might be surprised at, at how good it can sound. And, you know, I think for as a stopgap for a year, I mean, certainly I, I if there were bands I wanted to see and, and I can't get to, you know, and I can't get to go and see them in a field, I'd definitely consider getting a ticket. Well, with restrictions easing as well, I think people will be able to live stream the festival with their friends in the garden at some, you know, uh, I guess well, what point May will be out. Yeah, we'll, we'll be, we're allowed six people in gardens at that point. So, you know, that'd be quite cool. So I guess, yeah, we're on a bit of a watching brief for festivals as you are listeners. So, uh, yeah, we'll 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 kind of return to this topic as as the situation unfolds. Um, so I guess another thing I wanted to talk to you about, you know, we've been away for a few weeks, Sarah. Um, what music have you been listening to in recent weeks to, to get you through the last few weeks of lockdown as things start to unlock? Like what, what's been spinning around your head? Yeah, I mean, I've been listening to quite a lot of radio, actually, uh, which which I think just having I've been quite busy at work. So kind of having that mindless, not, you know, not having to, to make a choice has been quite nice for me over the last few weeks. But uh, one album that I keep going back to time and time and time again. Um, and actually, you reminded me when we had a, a quick chat off air that it's actually a decade old um, and it's going to be re-released in um, in April this year. And it is The English Riviera by Metronomy. Um, and I actually bought uh, tickets to see Metronomy last week, actually. Um, and they're going to be funny, funny story, though. Uh, I thought I got very excited thinking, oh, my gosh, yes, they're playing um, Alexandra Palace on the 7th of May this year I'll buy tickets so I kind of set my alarm for when they went on sale because I just had this feeling that they'd sell out really quickly because such a popular popular act now um, well they have been for such a long time but they're they're you know they're a bit of a cult a cult band aren't they mm, um mm. so I bought the tickets and then I looked at my diary and thought hang on why is this why does it say that the 7th of May is a Friday it definitely says Saturday on, on the website went back to the website of course it's 2022 so um so I've got tickets for 2022 in May uh to see Metronomy um you know I've, I've known about Metronomy wow I mean for probably way more than 10 years so I first saw them at Bestival when Bestival was kind of a tiny little festival um, and I remember seeing them and they had these DIY lights on their chest and they kind of used to bash them to make them light up and bash them to turn the light off in time to the music. And I just thought it was so fun. What about you? So what have I been listening to? Yeah, I've discovered kind of a newish band and they're one of those names that I was kind of aware of but never really listened to called Goat Girl. Um, and they put their second album out a few weeks ago called On All Fours. Um, and it's one of those records that's just kind of completely completely grabbed me you know I have this probably once a year where a new artist comes along and I'm like where have you been all my life you know this is just the absolute archetypal sound that I enjoy so really kind of psychedelic lots of different kind of sonic textures on there um and a quite an interesting sort of backstory to them you know they're part of the same kind of South London uh sort of indie scene centered around kind of the Brixton Windmiller's shame and fat white family and all those sort of bands so they're a bit I guess alternative and a bit left wing um but yeah just a a brilliant brilliant album and one of those it reminds me when I first discovered the Oriels uh sort of this time last year and it just became my soundtrack to to kind of lockdown it's become I guess the soundtrack to the second or third or whatever fourth whatever lockdown we're on and uh yeah speaking of the Oriels I've also been listening to them again because they've released um kind of their third album but it's more of a kind of 2.5 album in the it's a live cinematic version of Disco Volador, the album they put out last year. And it's interesting because that's 
that's the record they were talking about when they were interviewed by us um, on the episode we did back in, I think it was October, September times. It was interesting to see how that kind of panned out. And I, I guess based on that, I would say it's definitely one more for f- existing fans of the band rather than Access Point. If you're intrigued by what you're hearing from me here, go and listen to Disco Volador first, get obsessed with that. And then La Vita Elastikia, I think is how you pronounce it. La Vista, La Vita Olistaki, I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely go and have a listen to that. But um, I've got a bit of advert alert for that. So meanwhile, you know, you can find the episode of The Orioles talking about why they've created the album in the Demo Tapes archive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Yeah, nice plug, Sarah. Yeah, we should probably turn our attentions to the subject of this episode now. Uh, and it's the first in an occasional series we've actually been quite keen to kick off for a while, which is Lost Artists. Um, and we've got our first guest on, which is Amy Sharp aka Naughty's electro folk singer theoretical girl yeah but i think first of all rick you need to really explain what a lost artist is in in your eyes uh because i think we're going to have the listeners worried that these musicians have just actually disappeared off the face of the planet um and probably appearing on the side of milk cartons a la blur coffee and tv yeah so you're right there's not like a massively strict criteria for this uh, it's more of a nod to the fact that kind of we've covered a lot of big hitter bands from from back in the day and bands that we both love you know reverend the makers uh arctic monkeys uh the enemy bands like that but there are you know there are also lots of other artists that we maybe loved for an album or for a tour or for an ep that were that kind of burned brightly but quite briefly um you know, and I think I think it's an interesting topic to go back and, and sort of look back on, you know, those artists that, you know, where where are they now sort of thing. And if I'm honest, I've sort of nicked a little bit of this concept from NME because back in uh, the days when I worked for NME, every time we were stuck for an issue, that there was a gap in the schedule. We'd do Lost Albums, which is where we do kind of 100 albums you've never heard before, but you should go and check out, you know, kind of bands that were sort of that, that appeared and then disappeared quickly. I'm all up for that. So just to get this right, then it's great singers or bands who released music back in the day, back in our day, really. Or it doesn't need to be our day, but a day, maybe like an album or two toured and then just sort of disappeared. Exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, what I'm not saying this is Lost Artist is a band you saw in a pub once who did one gig. You know, it has to have been someone um, who who was established and, and, you know, who made it into the press, who did a UK tour. And uh, yeah, the idea is that as a listener, you might hear this and go, oh, yeah, I do remember that name. I wouldn't li- I'd like to know what they've been up to. So that probably leads us on to this this first episode. And we've got an interview with Southend singer songwriter, theoretical girl, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but probably just to warm the listeners up, I thought it'd be nice for us just to mention maybe an, a band each. There's an example of, of lost artists that we love. Um, you know, maybe this becomes a bit of a hit list for bands that we want to get on future episodes. So do you want to kick off? Absolutely. And this is one we both agree on. Uh, I remember having this conversation with you a few years ago now. Um, I don't even know how it came up into conversation, but one of us started talking about a band called The Open um, and they were a real small niche band, although they did release two albums. You know, they're from Liverpool. They're a five piece band. Um, and the two albums were The Silent Hours in 2004 and Statues in 2006. And um, I remember I remember seeing them for the first time in Stealth, actually, in Nottingham. Um, and it was they were playing on the top floor in Stealth. And it was during my kind of blagging journalism days for my, much like the Pete Doherty story that I told you where um, I 
picked up a load of magazines and went backstage and got an interview with with Pete. Um, I pretty much tried to do the same thing with the Open and actually <laughs> tried to get back into the little uh, VIP backstage area where they were by saying, yeah, I got in touch with the record label to get an interview, but they said no. <laughs> and uh, I sort of like cornered, I think it was his guy, a guy called Jim, who was a bassist or a guitarist. And he was like, Really? They said, no, that's really strange. Hang on a minute. Went and talked to, to Steve Bailey, Stephen Bailey, uh, who was the lead singer of the Open. And they both kind of welcomed me with open arms into the area and started talking to me and was, you know, were very, very happy to talk to me. And I ended up doing an interview with them, uh, which which went subsequently went into that fanzine that I was writing. I think it went into my um, uh, student magazine as well <laughs> which was uh, I mean I've, it's, it's long gone I've not got any copies of that sadly I'd love to see what my writing was like when I was 17 I just I still listen to the silent hours to this day and it just really gets me going in fact I had it on my marathon playlist um along with all the EDM which also got me going um but just I would really really recommend if you if you if you were into music back in those days to go and listen to the silent hours in particular I think that one was better than statues although statues were still good yeah I, I was a big fan of the open as well as you mentioned and I think I think for me the sound the kind of sound was was so ambitious it's probably too big for them almost you know they almost they sounded like a stadium rock band when they were playing in venues like uh like stealth, they just had a massive wide, what we used to call in the day widescreen sort of sound. Maybe a bit of Echo and the Bunny Men in there. Maybe a bit of U2 in there. And and yeah, I mean for me they're the archetypal lost band because I think why weren't they massive? You know what what was it that held them back from from going from stealth to to Rock City to then you know an even bigger venue in Manchester would be going to like the Apollo and then going to to kind of the arena. So yeah, I'd I'd love to get uh, Stephen Bailey or one of the band on to. Um, to kind of discuss what happened there. And I think I think a few of them are still making music as well, so it'd be interesting to talk about that. And, uh, yeah, I guess I'll talk about my choice for, for kind of lost artists. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the Stills, who, actually, I was thinking about this, their sound isn't a million miles from the open either, probably because they were from a sort of similar era, uh, but they were from Canada, uh, released a few albums between kind of 2003, 2008. So actually, in a sense, they didn't burn that briefly. They just kind of burned under the radar a little bit. Uh, and it's their debut, Lola Stars and Stripes, that I think is probably the most fondly remembered. Quite a cult sort of album. Uh, I saw them tour the UK back in the day. Uh, great live band. But I think, you know, on this one, I can maybe an better answer why I don't think they went big, which was it sounded quite a lot like Interpol at the same time as Interpol were breaking through. And I think maybe that town wasn't big enough for the both of them, if you know what I mean. You know, the listeners of the music collections only had kind of space for that one kind of Joy Division, Echo and the Bunnymen-esque. Uh, sort of gloomy uh, rock band but again it one if you haven't heard definitely worth uh, having a bit of a scout around Spotify to have a listen to because I highly recommend them. Yeah good I think the mystery of why some of these artists never break through the glass ceiling is going to become a bit of a common theme uh, on these lost artists episodes Rick which probably leads us nicely onto this week's guest as we talked about Amy Sharp aka Theoretical Girl. Yeah, and I was really interested to get Amy on the show, actually, because I remember seeing her live kind of back in the day, uh, and I, won a, I think it was a one and only album that came out, Divided, in 2009. Uh, and like I was saying before, she seemed uh, kind of flavour of the month at one point in around kind of 2008, 2009, and then just sort of disappeared. Um, I thought she had, a, I mean, you know, in terms of what I liked about her, a really interesting kind of melding of styles. You know, there's a lot of folk in there, electro, even a bit of kind of classical, um, and also a great voice, you know, kind of, for me, all the constituent ingredients were in there. Um, and yeah, it was interesting that she kind of burned briefly and brightly, but but then never really kicked on from there, which I suppose 
probably, and I think you come onto this in the interview to, to a degree, even if you don't explicitly talk about it, is to say there's a lot of luck, I think, back then in terms of stuff that, that broke through. There were so many artists and labels were signing so many bands kind of day in, day out. That I think there was definite luck in terms of, of kind of what broke through and, and, and who went to become, you know, megastar famous and then who maybe stepped back from the, from the spotlight. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's a good place to to pick up her story, Rick. So um, let's get her on, shall we? I'm here today with Amy Sharp, aka Theoretical Girl, um, and we're chatting on a. It's been a bit sunny, a bit misty, and a bit of a rainy lockdown day in in February. Um, thanks for taking the time to speak uh, with me today, Amy. How are you doing? Well, yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. Um, it's really rainy and grey and dull here, but I'm warm and I've got my cup of coffee, so I'm good, thank you. Good way to start the day with a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's the morning as well, so normally we interview people in the evening, so we're normally talking about what we're going to have for dinner and what glass of wine we're going to have, but um, it's definitely coffee time today. Yeah. Um, so so we all know that at Demo Tapes, we're, we're all about talking about the scenes of yesteryear, and I know you are very much a part of the, the same early naughty scene that Rick and I were also part of. And I do want to talk to you about that in a bit more detail. But for now, I want to talk uh, a bit more about what you're up to at the moment. So we were just chatting off air. And what I didn't realise is that you are now a piano teacher, right? I am, yes. Yeah. So I've been able to carry on music in some kind of form. So I was living in London and um, I was working in a hospital for teenagers with mental health problems. And I did that for years and years and years, and then I met a man, and he lived in Surrey, and I saw it as my as my opportunity to go and live in the country. So I left that job, left London, came to Surrey, leafy Surrey, and um, now I'm teaching piano. Lovely, yeah, leafy Surrey. Whereabouts in Surrey are you? I'm I'm technically in Surrey, Croydon, but not the leafy bit that you're probably in. I'm way out west. I'm like on the border of, of Hampshire and Berkshire and Surrey. Oh, lovely. So, yeah, you saw that as a ticket out of London. Yeah, and of course, and of course, he was lovely as well. <laughs> well, that's the bit, that's the main part, right? Yeah. And, uh, and you have, you're, you've been homeschooling, haven't you? So you've, uh, you've started a family, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the dog came first and then, and then the baby. Um, and she's five now. Oh, how's how's it all been with kind of homeschooling and and the craziness that that's kind of lockdown has caused? Have you have you found that okay? Well, actually, it kind of worked out. It kind of worked out well because we we thought about homeschooling anyway, and then we kind of didn't have a choice. Well, so we've perfect. embraced it and we we love it and we're going to carry on doing it. Yeah, perfect. Well, you you you're actually the first person I've heard that said that. So I um, <laughs> love it. That's interesting. Yeah, that's good. Um, so in terms of kind of music, though, I, I see that you dusted off your vocal cords last year for the 2020 Record Store Day release um, and appeared on a song uh, called Moonraker by DJ Danforth. So how did all that come about? Um, well, that we actually did that a really long time ago. Um, he just approached me. I, do a, I, I used to do a, a yearly advent calendar at Christmas where people would request cover versions and I'd do one every day for the advent period. Um, and that was a lot of work, obviously. And then I had a baby and I kind of stopped it. But he'd heard my cover versions and he asked me to do Moonraker. And that was years ago. And then he's put together a little seven inch of various covers of 
Bond themes. And so that's how it ended up on there. Nice. Well, you know, talking about Bond, um, I, I think, you know, having listened to that song, the vocals, you know, your vocals are really, really dreamy. And it does remind me, you know, it catapults me into thinking I'm in, in a Bond film on the mountains skiing with Roger Moore or something. But um, oh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, it really was because when I listened to it, it really did transport me. And I think, you know, I love music when it transports you to places. And, um, you know, I wanted to kind of ask you about your your vocal influences. Well, I've, I've always liked um, I've always liked people who sing the same as they speak. So like Nick Drake, for example, you can hear when you hear his voice recorded when he's talking, he sounds exactly the same as when he's singing. I kind of find it a bit. It's it's not, not my taste when I hear somebody and then they sing in a completely different accent or a completely different style. It doesn't feel real enough for me. So uh, I just haven't really thought about it too much I just kind of sing naturally and um simply I think I like simple singers my favorite singers are singers who can't actually sing very well technically very well like Neil Young for example um so yeah I don't think about it too much I just sing and I don't try too hard um which probably comes across <laughs> well no I, I mean I think you've, you've you've obviously been blessed with a beautiful tone so maybe you don't need to do anything more um you know that that's that's that speaks for itself I guess um I guess you could be lucky in that sense that you don't really need to do too much to your voice but um definitely doesn't come across yeah it comes across like that definitely um but c could you see could you see yourself on a Bond song oh I'd love to yeah they're amazing aren't they I mean I know there's some there's some dodgy ones in there but they're mostly epic aren't they yeah, going back onto film soundtracks i see on your twitter that you gave anio Morricone a heart on your twitter and i'm assuming this is coinciding with his death last year yeah um he was a legend for film music but do you have any others you love any kind of composers any soundtracks um you can go wild so i had beauty and the beast okay. on my list as a bit of a wild card well, obviously i like a lot of piano based music so i like I like Max Richter and Olafur Arnolds and um, Einaudi and, you know, the, um, the piano soundtrack. Years ago, the film in the 90s, I think it was, the piano, and the score was done by Michael Nyman. And that's, that's amazing. But my husband is a massive, massive soundtrack fan, like 60s and 70s soundtracks. And he loves all these kind of, um, like, foreign like crazy Russian 70s soundtrack music or um, Turkish or, you know, like completely, I don't know how he finds this, these soundtracks, but they're absolutely amazing. And one of the best things about it is that you don't really know what they're singing about. So you can kind of make, make the soundtrack whatever you like, but they're really, um, they're really magical. So much effort went into soundtracks back in like the 60s and 70s. Now it feel, feels a bit like you just like hire Hans Zimmer and make this massive score. But before it was a lot more subtle. But then if you want me to give you names, I would be absolutely useless because I don't know what any of them are called. <laughs> but definitely, definitely, if you're into soundtracks, look into the 60s and 70s and look, look for kind of weird, random, foreign um, soundtrack and particularly mid 70s. And it is amazing. Oh, that's something I hadn't really considered before, actually. But does he find them online or does he uh, does he have a, a record collection and does he go kind of 
digging for records and things like he's, that. He's got a, he's got a record collection, but I think it mostly starts on YouTube. You know, there's a I guess there's a small group of like fanatics, like with anything, and you know, word of mouth and you know, sharing YouTube videos and of things they found, and then you know that then you can hunt down the record and it's going for hundreds and hundreds of pounds. You know, it's like this crazy niche scene that I never knew existed. Wow, no, me neither. So does does he have his own YouTube channel? Could we check it out or is it is it very much just you know, his own personal thing? You, I'd have to tell you after what he what it yeah, is that he does. That's <laughs> cool because we could we could link to it from the from the episode uh, blurb that we put together just in case anyone's interested in in hearing that kind of weird and wonderful 70s soundtrack. Some great stuff in there. So yeah, I'd recommend it. Wicked, yeah, I'd, be, I'd definitely be up for listening to that. Um, so I want to kind of get on to talking about Theoretical Girl, clearly, because because that's why you're here. Um, and I looked back at a Guardian review of your gig at Madame JJ's in 2008, which got four stars, which is brilliant. Um, and there's a, there's a paragraph, though, that I picked out. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Um, so it goes... It is not that her performance is perfect, although Turnage has an innate sense of showmanship, evident in her easy rapport with the crowd and in the dazzling gold dress and false eyelashes that she has donned for the night. She sometimes looks clumsy on stage and even daunted by her own guitar. What did you think <laughs> of that when you read that? It's quite accurate, really. Um, I, um, I used to get quite nervous, so I used to chat a lot. I mean, I've got some live recordings and I listened back to them not that long ago and I couldn't bear it because I was just talking so much. But um, I really liked the connection between me and the people who'd bothered to come to see me. And I used to have loads of kind of real regulars and they were they all became my friends. So I liked to interact with them and it helped ease my my nerves when you feel like you're there with friends and people that you're chatting to. It's not so daunting, but I am really clumsy, and um, you know, it was a it was a bit of a ramshackle thing. The whole my whole musical career, like I never really, we never really practiced properly. I never really practiced properly. I all I kind of just went along with it and just was very much in the moment. I guess if I could go back in time, maybe I'd prepare a bit more, try a bit harder, but that might ruin the fun of it all. So. Um, I guess that's quite an accurate review, I'd say. Yeah, and, and going back to what you'd said before a bit earlier on around your favourite vocalists of people who aren't perfect. So mm. it all plays into the same thing, doesn't it? That kind of the, um, the p- perfection is in the imperfections. Yeah. I always um, like, um, I, worked with a, I worked with a producer and he used to, um, I'd do a take and think it wasn't very good and that would always be his favourite one like the one that wasn't perfect that had you know a slight squeak in the voice or ever so slightly out of tune or something that was that wasn't perfect and he helped me to learn to love things that um, had a bit more life and personality. Yeah 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 so so how did you get into you know where did the name Theoretical Girl come from as well because it's quite a striking name. So I I had my first ever gig booked in some random snooker hall in East London and I didn't have a name and a friend of mine had written some lyrics that I'd put some music to and in the lyrics it was about being a theoretical girl and I just took that at that moment because I didn't have another name and then I, like everything else, I just 
went with the flow and it was there then so I just stayed with it and then several months later I learned that there was already a band called Theoretical Girls and I used to get quite a lot of flack from hardcore theoretical girls fans like <laughs> you take the name and, oh dear yeah. So the yeah. girls were really, really good, so I could see why they were protective. <laughs> well, it's one of yeah. I think I doing my research, I came across theoretical girls, and I thought this isn't what I remember. No, <laughs> this has to be. Me. This has to be wrong. Yeah, and I was like, oh yeah, no, that's completely different. Ours is all together. Um, but talking about just uh, going back to Madame JoJo's a second. Um, you know, that was a, a gig venue which is sadly no longer with us, um, and it made me think about the the multitude of of gig venues that we've lost since then and I want to kind of talk to you a bit about your thoughts on what you what impact you think this has had on the culture of London and we know it's not just London right the whole of the UK has suffered with this but London was instrumental to that you kind of word of this like part of the scene that you were very much a part of so what do you what do you think about the kind of loss of culture that we've experienced in the recent years it's it's um it makes me feel so sad looking Looking back, um, there were so many good venues. Like, you could go... I have a friend called Roger who, who calls himself the Gig Slut. And he's... I think he must be in his 70s now. Sorry, Roger, if you're younger than 70. But he um, he goes, or he did, go to several gigs every night. And you'd always see him, you know, he'd go to... He'd have a list. His list was famous. It was on this big sheet of paper all crinkled up with with all the bands that he was going to see and all the bands that he'd seen that year and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gigs on this piece of paper he and he'd go to three or four every night and there weren't it wasn't just him there were loads of people that were their whole life was about going to all of these gigs and you know, loads of them would be free um, and you know or very very cheap you know there were obviously other nights that were more expensive but you could go out and have an absolutely amazing night and see loads of bands, small bands, bigger bands, emerging bands, you know, very first gigs, bands who'd been around for years, all on the same bill. And um, was constantly, constantly finding really good new music. And it just makes me so sad that that is completely gone. I mean, where are these people going to play? How are they going to get their music out there? I am... Um, I would be too afraid to gig now, but it was so good for me and my music at the time. Um, I never had to really try to spread the word because there were so many opportunities to play and then people would talk about it and then come again and tell their friends and it was always expanding and um, it was, like I say, it was kind of effort, effortless to, to get a following. Um, but now I don't know what, what people would do. How will it work? I guess you have to be signed to some kind of major label to be able to have a gig it's awful mm, yeah it is it is crazy and but yeah how you know how do you how do people find out about new music like that now how do you find out about your that new music oh yeah or do you even bother <clears throat> these days to find out about new music well I'm probably a bit I'm probably a bit stuck in my in my ways because I don't tend to, to look for new music these days but when I when I do, I go I go to online magazines that I used to love, you know, from like I go to the Quietus, and um, and I look at what my friends are listening to, and um, but I don't actively seek it out these days, really. So I don't I don't know how people find out about new, new music. I know that I teach a lot of kids who who are making their own music, 
and they rely on Instagram a lot. Um, and but that's um, you know the pressure to. I have I have a people who um, really wants to make music and and you know become a singer songwriter and they they put themselves under this incredible pressure to like constantly come up with new content because they have to be because the the people who potentially might sign them need to see that they've got loads of kind of social media interaction and um, it feels like a lot of pressure. But again, just got, wanted to go back on something you touched on um, around you saying you'd be too afraid to gig. Why? Why is that? You know, what 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 do you mean by that? Um, I think, uh, like, a, going back to what I said before about um, not really thinking about things and just going with the flow. And I think I would think about it too much now, and I would. Um, it's not. Um, it's it's strange because I care much less about what people think about me but I would want to do a good a job for myself much more than I did then then I'd just get a bit drunk and just have fun but now I'd want it to be you know a good performance right okay yeah and, and I think that would make me too nervous to to do it oh well you know going back to those days who who were your mates you know what did you get up to were you as uh, rock and roll as everyone else seemed to be back in those days <laughs> um, I as rock and roll as everybody else seemed to be pro pro I guess it was probably somewhere in the middle we definitely weren't well behaved but we definitely weren't as, as bad as you know we could have been um, in, in the early days uh, there was a band called Twisted Charm that we used to hang out with a lot um, then um, Ipso Facto and Oh gosh, it's really hard to think about now. Quite quite a few kind of um a few acts that went on to be really, really successful. Um Kate Nash was around a lot and Paloma Faith was around a lot. There there was lots of kind of those twee bands that we played with a lot. Um Howling Bells. Oh, so honestly, so many. It's really difficult to think. Um, and what did you guys get up to? Like, what was a typical night out? If you, if you were maybe if you were playing a gig or going to watch one one of your mates' gigs, you know, what would you typically get up to on a night out? Would you, would it be just going to the gig and then going home, or would you be, you well, know, going to after parties and what would you be doing? There's always that thing about um, about gigging where you have the sound check r ridiculously early in the afternoon, and then you've got nothing to do but drink so quite a lot of quite a lot of um sitting in empty venues you know with uh, with the other bands that were sound checking and drinking fair fair amount and then playing and then drinking some more <laughs> and then a lot of dancing because obviously all of the in those days all of those clubs you you have your you have your bands and then they're open practically all night for some kind of club afterwards um so a lot of dancing and then yeah mostly just staying out until it was light really I think and then getting the getting the bus home and going to work <laughs> oh man you were also working at full time then I mean you couldn't do it now could you <laughs> some not. of the things that you used to get up to and go to work the next day uh, well I was remembering this um this weekend where I um I played in Japan and I, I flew to Japan on Friday after like straight from work and then gigged at the whole weekend in Japan and then flew back on a night flight and landed in London on Monday morning and went straight to work on Monday morning from 
from the airport. Do you remember any of that? Was that just a bit of a whirlwind? I do the remember. Lag. Oh, yeah, no, I do, that's I do remember random, random parts of it, the weirdness of being in a, you know, when you tour in Europe, you can pretty much work out, you know, what the signs say and where you are. But when you end up in Asia, you're, it's completely alien. And, and um, a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of my gigs were just me, like completely on my own, nobody traveling with me. Because I think, I think a lot of the opportunities I got were because it was just me. They didn't have to like pay for the whole band to come. So um, I just remember being in the middle of, of, of Tokyo and just like or completely on my own and not being able to read a single sign and like this is just the weirdest feeling ever but amazing but really weird and scary yeah wow I mean I went to Tokyo a couple of years ago and just thought we we both thought it was um it's like the west but completely upside down everything is just looks looks like it should be the same but it's really not at all and you're kind of very it's a very confusing place but absolutely incredible where were your favorite um you know what were your favorite festivals and, and gigs and things like that um well i i loved um the buffalo bar yeah and and a night in particular called twee as fuck um which was run by some really lovely girls and uh, they used to pick really amazing bands and they were lovely and it was a really small really intimate venue and um, everybody knew everybody and it was um, really fun I loved the Buffalo Bar and I loved Madame Jojo's every Tuesday night at Madame Jojo's was amazing and then towards the end of this kind of scene of, of me playing I liked I liked the Lexington a lot and I think None of those venues. I think the Lexington is just hanging on, isn't it? Yeah, the Lexington's still around, but the rest are gone, all gone. Yeah. <laughs> so sad. I mean, I, I, yeah, I hope it, I think there's going to be a bit of a crazy, um, you know, it's going to be like a 1920s post-war feel, I hope, when COVID's over. I hope people <laughs> kind of go, go back to going out and like, yeah, going crazy, yeah. I think people probably will. I think it's going to happen. Going back to the scene, you know, what was it like being, I know you said you were kind of alone, but you were also a woman in such a male-dominated scene. Um, how was that? And do you think you were taken as seriously at being a woman in that in those times? Because it, it was different, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, there were definitely, having said that I got more opportunities because I was on my own, there, were, there was also the side of it where, um, you know, oh, we've already got a girl or, you know, on this roster or on this club night or, you know, so there was a lot of, you know, you can only have one weird stuff like that. You can only have one girl act. But then to counteract that, there were lots of nights where, you know, that were run by women that, you know, had lots of opportunities for girls to play. There's a lot of, you know, I remember feeling quite patronised a lot. Like, who you know, I used to get asked, who wrote your, did you write your songs? And um, people would... If I if I went with you know a male friend, people would often talk to them when I was setting up you know you know to ask you know technical questions about my setup. It's like they don't know, but I do. <laughs> um, a lot of that. Um, but other than that, I think the girls were really supportive of each other. Um, but people did try to. I have this sense that people tried to pit us against each other a bit. I remember being asked a lot about 
what I thought about other girls in music, but not, it didn't feel like it was worded in a friendly way. Like they weren't looking for me to say, oh yeah, I love them and they're great. It felt like they were trying to get us to kind of, you know, to be competitive with each other rather than be supportive of each other. Um, but other than that, I, yeah, there, there, it wasn't too bad, but there were definitely moments of, of it being obvious that being a, a girl meant I was being treated differently. Mm, yeah, and how did you combat that then? I just tried to play the best I could and just... Um, well, it's it's nice, isn't it? It's nice when you can kind of... I, my attitude is always to kill people with kindness. So whenever anybody treated me badly, I just... I was just really nice to them. And as a general rule, that works. People then kind of realise that they've been a bit of an idiot and it's turn it around. Bit, it? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I ever had to, I mean, it's so difficult to remember. It's such a long time ago. My memory's so bad. But I don't think I ever had to, you know, get into any ding-dongs with anybody about anything. And what advice would you give to, let's say, your daughter wants to follow in your footsteps and become a musician? I mean, it's probably a lot, it's a bit of a better world for, for women out there today. And there's a load of amazing female songwriters that are able to do their thing now, which is great. But what, would, what advice would you give her? Um, I would say to her that she should um, make music that she likes and not to listen too much to the, the opinions of other people. I think when I was making my album, I was a bit torn um, and lots of people had given me advice um, and all of the advice was conflicting. And so I didn't really know what to do. And I wish I'd just listened to myself and what I wanted to do. So I would advise her to definitely do it for herself and not for any kind of feedback or, um, you know, adoration or <laughs> um, for anybody else. Definitely, that's that's some, some good advice. Has she, I mean, I don't know if five's a bit too young, but has she shown any musical promise yet? Yeah, she loves music. Ah, okay. She loves Kate Bush and... Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, Joni Mitchell, David Bowie. Um, You're raising her to be a little cool kid. I love yeah, that. She likes Daddy's music more, though. What, the weird 70s soundtrack? The weird 70s no. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see where that takes her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, 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 do try to, I do try to give her little piano lessons, but, you know, she's just, um, she's not interested in doing, uh, she's not interested in doing anything the way you're supposed to do it. She likes to find her own way to do things, so, which is totally cool with me. Um, so I'll, I'll just let her, I'm just here to facilitate whatever she wants to do. Oh, Lovely. Well, hopefully we'll see a mini theoretical girl on stage one day, Much on a virtual stage, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, going, going back to kind of artists, you've talked about the fact that, um, you know, you're, you're not massively into new music. But are there any artists that you've come across in the last sort of five years or so that that you think are, are amazing and, and why? Well, um, I like, I never know, it just shows you how out of touch I am. I never know how you're supposed to pronounce pronounce it. Is it Way's Blood or Wise Blood? Um, W-E-Y-E-S. Oh, it's my, like Weiss Blood, like Weiss Blood. It's like German. She's, she's amazing. And Julia Holter and Phoebe Bridges. Um, I, I still obviously like, I um, lean towards the girls in music. Yeah. Laura Groves. So quite folky still, like you know, female. Yeah, but there's it's um, 
more complex than that. I think there's a lot. The reason I like them is because there's a lot going on. It's not they don't really fit into one kind of genre. Those those girls I've mentioned. Um. Yeah, but that's pretty much where I get to at the moment. I need to I need to um, do a bit more investigating. <laughs> a bit more music. Well, you don't have to. I mean, there's so much old music out there. You yeah, could, you could you could spend the rest of your life never having to find anything new, really. Very true. There's just so much so much to explore, including seventies weird film soundtracks. I'll definitely get you a link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, so Rick and I, we we'd actually, we I think we sort of it's dropped off our radar a little bit. But Rick coined this bunga banda bob um, kind of campaign that we started to do at the beginning of the year because. The um, you know the gov- you know, I'm sure you will agree, but the government's um, you know I'm sure you're as appalled as we we were at the fact that the government was asking people in the creative industries to retrain. Mm. I think they've kind of backtracked on that now because I think there was so much of an so much uproar. But what were your thoughts on all of that? They seem to be so um, led by economy that I didn't understand that they couldn't appreciate the amount of revenue that our creative industries bring and how much would be lost I mean you know you've got to think like a Tory to understand a Tory I guess and and you know it appears to me that they're so driven by economy and and financial success um that I can't and I just can't understand how they couldn't see that that would be a, a huge loss just economically or economically um but I, I'm not surprised at all that 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 was their view. I think, I think it's a, it's an opinion that creativity is a, perhaps a more of a left wing thing, which is obviously not true at all. And I feel like um, this government tries to protect the people that are going to vote for them and they kind of forget the rest. And I'd imagine that they, in their minds, the creative industries are people that possibly don't vote for them, so they possibly don't need to look after them. And this is my cynical, my cynical view. But it, it's appalling and disgusting, but absolutely what I would expect from them. Mm. And what what would you want to see uh, in the future um, along those lines? You know, what opportunities would you like to see for musicians, um, maybe maybe existing musicians or or people that really want to get into the industry? I guess I guess there need to be there, there need to be more opportunities for people to um, develop their skills. So I, I guess I mean there there were a few little kind of bits and pieces around when I was around to to get you know little bits of money to you know um, carry out projects. But I guess funding is the main thing, isn't it? So people who have ideas have the opportunity to to give them a go and develop their skills that way. Um, but I can't see that happening in the current climate. Mm, I mean, what could what could we all do to pull together to help? I don't know. There, there, there seems to me that I think that the amount of people that are in these industries, um, you know, maybe we can't make a difference in, at government level. But, you know, what could we do to rally together to, to, to create these opportunities? You know, is it the reopening of gig venues is it people kind of making a bit a bit more of an effort to to reopen gig nights and put gigs on and you know it's 
the fact the right. fact is that it's possible mm, that always used to be the ethos when i'm in like in our scene it was a diy thing that if you wanted an opportunity to play then you would put on your own club night but it was it was a lot easier to do then so yes i guess opportunities to um to to just give things a go and open up club nights and um, I, th- I think people need to buy more physical records, don't they, when, where they can, where they've got the finances to encourage people and to go to gigs. Um, I think there's a problem in, in the education system as well that, you know, these, these subjects, artistic subjects are being pushed aside to make way for their more kind of traditional roots. I know that my, my husband's a secondary school teacher and I know that um, the more artistic subjects are getting less and less kind of support. And um, I think children are un- feel under pressure to do the more academic courses. And as a result, there are less people doing the artistic courses and as a result, they don't happen. Um, so I think there needs to be a change there as well. Different kinds of, of courses and access to different opportunities at school. Um, you know, there are a lot of children who, who are really strong in artistic subjects, but there isn't the opportunity to to go along with that and and find out where it could take them. Right. Well, I guess like we, we've um, we've covered a load today, and it's been really really great to talk to you. Um, do you want to just remind people of where they can go to find out more about Theoretical Girl? Yeah. Well, there's a Facebook page, there's a, an Instagram page, and um, I'm on iTunes and Spotify, all the usual places. There's loads of YouTube videos that are all highly embarrassing. Um, and my album is still available if you wanted to buy it. Brilliant. Support artists, guys. Go and buy it. <laughs> um, so we, you said you're not going to be doing any more touring for the reasons we talked about earlier. But is there an opportunity that we might see a return of Theoretical Girl um, in, in a recording sense? Well, that, um, that is the thing that I miss the most. I miss having time to write songs and I miss recording studios a lot. They are amazing, amazing places. Um, and that was easily my favourite thing. So I would love to have some headspace to write a few songs and get back in the studio again if they were good enough. Um, but somebody takes up quite a lot of my time at the moment, so <laughs> we'll have to see. I can imagine. Well, it's been so good talking to you and hopefully, fingers crossed, that, that happens because we'd love to see it. But um, yeah, and thanks uh, again and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And sorry, my memories were a bit hazy. No, it's, it's great. Thank you. See you. Thank you. A lot to pick through there, Sarah, I think. Uh, and definitely some common themes that have come up in other interviews, kind of in terms of sexism in the music industry, which obviously is an even kind of more pertinent um, sort of topic now than even when you did, were doing this interview with Amy a, a couple of weeks back. Yeah, definitely. It was it was really kind of interesting to talk to her, not just about those topics as well, but, you know, things like how the the scene and the way we go out has changed over, over the time, over the years. Mm-hmm. So back in those days, you know, you'd used to play, well, for, for her anyway, she'd used to play a club night such as White Heat, which was um, at Madame Jojo's in Soho, sadly a venue that doesn't exist anymore, boo-hoo, because it was great. Uh, and then afterwards, it would turn into a club night pretty much straight away. Literally, the lights would go down and the DJ would come on and, and everyone would be on the dance floor. Um, and I, I, I just really missed that. <laughs> and, and I kind of hope that comes back at some point in the future. You know, we have lost a lot of venues, but I think 
there are well we've lost a lot of kind of the traditional venues but I still think there are places out there that would that would be kind of willing to cater to that kind of model so let's try and bring that back uh, I loved that part of the interview and the other bit that really stuck in my head actually was her telling me about her husband's bizarre um love of bonkers uh uh, sound film soundtracks um which she couldn't re- remember any of the names actually when we spoke i think that uh, that might come through in the interview but i'm hoping that kind of on listening to this again it, it reminds her and she can share some of the uh some of the cool stuff with us that we can hopefully share for you on our uh instagram on, and twitter yeah because film soundtracks have been a bit of a theme of some of our episodes of demo tapes haven't they? we did a whole episode on film soundtracks and our favorite uh, music movies so it's definitely it's definitely a kind of world that seems to sort of blur into ours isn't it i think another thing i picked up from this interview that i thought was interesting is you know she's still very much involved in music you know she's a piano teacher now and i think that's maybe the thing that you've got to remember as a music fan sometimes just because someone steps back from the spotlight i mean it's very unlikely that they're never going to pick up a guitar or sit at a piano again because at the end of the day to become a successful musician or even kind of a noted musician you know you have to have that love of music and i don't think that goes away for anyone does it there's all this stuff probably going on behind the scenes that that music fans will will never hear probably yeah people are just away from the spotlight doesn't mean they've stopped doing music uh i wonder if that's another that's another theme we could look to explore couldn't we some of the people that are still doing music in in any kind of some way shape or form actually it's just kind of reminded me of a memory of you know when i spoke to dave from blur what he's doing now is he's creating um fil- uh, for scores for i think it's sky sky tv series and things like that so mm. you know something that's mm. not in the public domain necessarily but i thought that's quite interesting um obviously why blur goes on a bit of a, hi- a bit of a hiatus so i hope they come back again soon anyway yeah so and, and i think you know as we were saying up front this lost artist has a bit of a loose theme so yeah let, let's see where we go with this i think we made a solid start there with amy uh, theoretical girl and and that's kind of episode one of this occasional series but yeah listeners listen out for our next lost artist we're not going to do this where we do you know five in a row they'll kind of be peppered throughout uh, future series but yeah i guess if there's a lost artist you'd like us to go and track down you know why not get in touch with us and and let us know who they are and we'll do our best to do our kind of best sherlock holmes impression to go and find them does sherlock holmes sound like he's got a cold maybe that would maybe that <laughs> maybe that should be a a recurring theme every time you've got a cold we'll do the lost artists so how would listeners get in touch with us to uh to put us on the trail yeah so yeah put us on the trail leave some breadcrumbs um you can get in touch with us at demotapespod at gmail.com or we are on instagram and twitter at demotapespod we'll admit that we know we we will be upping our ante on social media um over the next few weeks yeah sounds good so yeah i guess i've got my magnifying glass out now and i'm following a trail of footprints for our next lost artist but otherwise that's all we've got time for this week so all that's left to say is see you on the next episode Bye, guys.